So I woke up this morning, um, once again, acutely feeling the need for God's rest, Danielle talked about last week. Um, as I heard the news from Ukraine, once again, sorely aware of my need for Jesus and the world's need for Jesus. Um, and while Hebrews is not a text that I tend to spend a lot of time in, I must admit, I am thankful uh, for the chance today and through this semester to dig deeper into this comforting yet convicting book. And I hope you are as well. In reading it during this study, I have realized once again that it makes crucial theological connections that really encapsulate for me so much of why I remain a follower of Christ and why I continue in my knowledge that I need Christ for my survival. That doesn't mean I understand everything about this text or we'll be neatly applying this text to today's news. Um, I woke up a little too late for that. Um, but we know from Hebrews 1 that the Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power, 1-3, that the psalmist says, quoted in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. just found those somewhat comforting words this morning. Um, in today's passage, too, we find some comfort, some encouraging exhortation, and some stern instruction. And all of it hinges on the emphasis that the author has made throughout the book. Christ's superiority, and his identity as both divine and human. Our passage last week left us in a really uncomfortable spot. We were striving for rest, whatever that looks like, um, and the author told us that the word of God was dissecting and exposing our disobedience. These were the last words. It said, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account, verse 13. Wow. When I read that, a few images come to mind. And so I'm just going to set aside the first one that came to mind, which was going to the gynecologist. I'm going to set that one right over there. Um, I will instead choose to think about a different image um, that is going to the dentist. Um, my dental hygienist is not confused when she cleans my teeth that I have once again disobeyed. I have not flossed as I ought to, and I have probably convinced myself that I have flossed more than I actually have since my last visit. She and my dentist get to the root of it quite easily because they don't have to look, uh, they don't have just my anecdotal evidence to support this claim. They are seeing my teeth. They know that I have disobeyed. Similarly, God knows, and the word of God, still now in this space, can get to the root of our disobedience why we didn't floss, our excuses around not flossing, or conversely, our pride about our, our perfect flossing, and on and on, right? And that's just like a silly example of real things that we do. But praise the Lord, uh, the author does not leave us alone in that nakedness and exposure in verse 13. He continues, and in this passage that we're starting today, begins a larger section of the text that will return again and again to the idea that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. 
Starting in verse 14, I'm going to read this uh, passage, most of it right now. Um, He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now speaking about high priests more generally, the author continues in chapter 5 saying, Okay, my iPad just decided to move. Sorry, hold on. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. Because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as those of the people. And one does not presume to take this on take on this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, I'm going to stop there for now, but um, what a passage already. The author here is not giving an account of Jesus for a class on theology at the Divinity School. He's not one of my students, but rather he is speaking to people who know their disobedience and sinfulness before God, a people who have been under the knife of the word, right? We just were reading about that. And while he is writing to folks in the first century, he is also certainly writing this to us today. The section opens, as Hebrews often uh, itself does, with the assertion that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is higher than the angels, higher than Moses, and seated at the right hand of God the Father. So we have a divine Christ here in this first sentence in verse 14, wrapped in royal language, Christ our King in heaven. And at the same time, we have this emphasis in comparison to a very human position of high priest. By definition, the high priest needs to be a human being because as the author says in verse one of chapter five, he is a representative of a people before God and vice versa. So we have this juxtaposition right here already of um, Christ's um, divine and human natures. Now, I want to stop here for a quick minute because I am, as you will see again and again, I'm a proponent of bringing all of your questions to the text and also being upfront about what stands between me and what the text is saying because I think if we're honest about it, maybe we can (laughs) move past it. Um, Sometimes a first reading of this text is almost dissonant to me. If I am naked and exposed, I don't think that I would want a great high priest. 
I don't think that's the one I would want initially if I were writing this. It sounds, that sounds like lofty and distant, maybe even dangerous. Perhaps my initial reading is clouded by the fact that we live in a world where people seek power over all others all the time. Whether it be war and invasion of a country, as we see today, or may, whether it be pastors, Christian pastors and priests using their authority to harm children and others under their care, which I read about over and over again in my, my uh, world that I live in. I almost want to ask the author if priest is the right label. I would want a companion, one who has my back, one who would not shame me in my nakedness, and I would hope for an advocate. But actually, when I get past my own stuff that sits between me and the text and I attempt to collapse the distance between this Jewish religious context and my own 21st century American context, I realize that what I'm looking for is actually what the author is saying Jesus is. A high priest of Israel is one selected from those who need representation before God, those under judgment, likewise exposed. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies where God dwelt to seek a pardon or atonement for the people. The priest described in 5, 1 through 4 is already the ideal form of a high priest, caring for people one-on-one, -on -one, aware of his own weaknesses, and doing his job for the whole group offering sacrifices and standing before God once a year. And as the Hebrews author demonstrates, Jesus is an even better high priest than this good high priest. We see that it is Jesus who passed through to where God dwells, that is heaven, and therefore Jesus, our great high priest, can intercede for us there forever, all the time, not just once a year. Jesus, who is both the son of God and the son of Mary, both divine and human, can be this mediation for us. He can care for us in our individual needs and for us as a collective, presenting a sacrifice. And even in heaven, Jesus can relate to us. The author describes Jesus as compassionate, as understanding of our weakest points and still without sin. He does not stand over us, lording his sinlessness over us, but rather his sinlessness allows him to bring that understanding and that true compassion to the throne of heaven. He does not hold on to his position as a point of pride, the author says, or haughtiness. Indeed, the author stresses that Jesus does not seek glory for himself, but he invites us to approach him boldly and find mercy and grace there with him. Honestly, the approachability of Jesus, the fact that God can understand my suffering, blows my mind a little bit when I really sit with it. The invitation to bring Jesus what has been exposed and found out is a constant throughout these verses. And going back to the beginning of chapter 4, might we find rest when we do that approaching? So with the author, I invite you to boldly approach our great high priest and find mercy and grace there to find mercy, this idea that we will not receive the judgment that we deserve, and grace, the free gifts of God that are so much more than we can ever dream or imagine. Who among us does not have something to bring? But I think you knew that coming in. Um, I want to offer another question. What might hinder you from approaching Jesus with your stuff, that stuff 
that might be hold that might be hiding or the stuff that you know is out there in the open but still actually haven't brought to Jesus. Um, if we find mercy and grace, a caring high priest here at this throne, why don't we take all of our things to him for, for healing, for comfort, for change? In thinking of this question, I have found that I have come to realize other things that I have not yet taken to the throne of grace. It has helped me expose more and more of my own things. I'm going to suggest some of the answers that I have thought of for myself as I read this text, but this list is surely not exhaustive. And the first is this. Sometimes I just honestly don't believe that I will actually find compassion, mercy, and grace with Jesus. Maybe it's some issue I have with authority. As Becky said, I am from New Jersey. We have some issues. Maybe it's just shame. Um, or maybe it's my doubts that Jesus would actually understand. So we know from the Gospels and here in Hebrews that, that Jesus' life was not an easy one, but one full of suffering. He has been tempted in every way, in every respect, the text says. Christ was born into a poor family in a situation that was not socially acceptable, part of a people who were under heavy rule of the Roman Empire, and that's just his situation at birth. He fasted in the desert alone for 40 days and was tempted by Satan himself. He cried over the death of a friend. He got tired and hungry, needed time away from people, but also saw his friends fail him when they needed, he needed them the most. He was conspired against by the authorities, not understood by his own family, betrayed for money, tortured, and killed publicly. And I want to, again want to emphasize, on the other hand, that Christ's suffering, too, is not something he seeks to hold over us, just like his sinlessness is not something he seeks to hold over us. This is not a notion of Jesus seeing our lives and saying, really, really, is that suffering? Like, have you seen my life? Downplaying my own struggles or suffering is a very common reason for me not bringing it to Jesus. But that is not the Jesus I know. And I so encourage you to read more about Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels on this point. The text says that he is able to sympathize with us. He does not lord it over us. He sits alongside us in our sufferings, our feelings, our circumstances. This is the Jesus that I know, even if oftentimes I don't live that out. Our author here, too, explains that Jesus himself prayed and reached out for help from God with loud cries and tears. Such evocative language there. And Hebrews brings us, as it did to the Garden of Eden in the previous chapter, to the Garden of Gethsemane here, right, in these verses, where Jesus asks that the Father take away his coming death. Even in his reverent submission and sonship, Jesus suffered and learned obedience, the text says. <laughs> Again, what a wild idea. Uh, can you imagine how much I have to learn if that was Jesus learning? So here's another reason why I don't often bring things to Jesus. Sometimes I don't think there's a point. I forget that it's worth it or I forget that it's gonna make a difference, or I don't think it's gonna make a difference, or I don't think God will actually do anything even if I believe God can. But the author sees a point here. The author is counter me 
constantly. This is the exposing work happening. Um, there, he says there is help in the time of need in 416. He says that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him in 5.9. And that's not just eternality in terms of salvation from hell, but also salvation and healing here. This is our eternal salvation every day. And now there's a sudden tone change in the text when we come to discuss maturity. So I'm going to keep reading 11 through 14. About this, we have much to say that is hard to explain, since you have become dull in understanding. Every PhD student wants to hear that, by the way. Um, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to the distinguish good from evil. So by now in this study, you likely have seen these warnings that the author sprinkles in. And here he wants his readers, that is us, um, to know that we are not where we ought to be. We are being taught once again when we ought to be teaching others. We are eating milk when we ought to be grown and able to eat solid foods. These oracles of God that he's talking about is these Old Testament passages that he's been weaving in and these stories that we're supposed to know and understand in light of Christ. And he has to explain it to us over and over again. Psalm 2.7 is repeated here in 5.5, which we have seen already in Hebrews. And Psalm 110.4 is the second quotation there in 5.6. We're going to leave aside um, Melchizedek for now because he's going to appear more prominently in a few chapters. But here, the author draws on him to emphasize the permanence of Jesus's priesthood, this forever aspect of it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like the key point he's drawing on here for Melchizedek. But the author is saying in this warning, dig into who Jesus is, these basic notions of Jesus as human and divine, of suffering of Jesus suffering and now in heaven that he's been explaining. Why do I have to explain these basic things to you again? That's what he said. Of Christ's mediation between us and God. These truths are so foundational. Foundational to life. And the truth of the matter is that Christ learned obedience through suffering. Christ was tempted in every way that we are, yet was able to distinguish good from evil. And that... And it is, all, and is this truth, this stress in the text that led me to my earlier statement about the passage's importance of my own life, in my own life, about why I'm still a Christian and why I know I need Christ. It's at the heart of this knowledge of who Christ is. The more I learn about Christ, the more I learn about myself, about my need for Christ, and the comfort it is to live life with such a great high priest. Our weaknesses, our temptations, and our sufferings they are all connected. If I've learned anything in the last two years, it's that suffering is a key place for sin and disobedience to grow. Can I just keep this one to myself, Jesus? It's been a question a little too close to my heart lately. Have you seen this year, God? The isolation, the loss, the anxiety, the brokenness, the stress of decision-making, we can go on and on. I think... I can have this sin or hold on to this hurt, this grudge, a little while longer. 
I tell myself that I am owed. And I wonder, sure, and I do mean this, it is good to be gracious with yourself. But what might happen if you found that grace in the great high priest first and foremost? What if we take these broken pieces and also give them to Jesus? These things that we strive to control, the things we want healed but maybe not right now, those things. What happens if we find grace in Jesus first? Getting to know the truth of who Christ is may be the key to approaching the throne, to seeking further discernment about good and evil, as he says in 514, to aligning our whole selves with the one who understands our weaknesses and sits in heaven, approachable, gentle, and ever compassionate. Maybe in the midst of our suffering, we too may learn obedience, drawing ever closer to a God who passed down through the heavens and suffered for us and for our salvation, as we proclaim in the Nicene Creed. Along with my larger question about what may hinder you from taking full advantage of, these, of this uh, groundbreaking truth about Jesus as our compassionate great high priest, I want to leave you with two songs that I really love that come to mind when thinking about this passage. One is a prayer to Jesus that sits at the center of my heart and has for about the last year and a half. And the other is an invitation from Jesus that has been important to me for the last about two, three years. So the first is from a song, uh, is from a band, uh, my favorite band called Need to Breathe, and it's their song titled Survival um, that they sing with Drew and Ellie Holcomb. So it wraps up in the chorus the tension I see in myself when reading this passage. And here's the chorus. It says, I know that I'm found and I can't keep from hiding. I don't have a choice but I get stuck deciding. I am a man in need of constant revival. Jesus, come quickly. I need you for my survival. And I just love that because in this passage, and going back to this um, naked and exposed of the passage beforehand, this is really where I see myself. So knowledgeable that I need Jesus, yet still hiding. So knowledgeable that Jesus knows, and I've been found out, yet I still hold things for myself. I don't seek the throne of grace. Um, and we are in constant need of revival as human beings. Um, and so I come back to this song often um, in this time. And the second song is a Black Knoll favorite, um, and this hymn actually invites us to Christ's table, but I think it can apply to us here. Um, and I hope you hear an invitation to approach Jesus um, as you are able. And you'll probably know it. Come all ye pining, hungry, poor. The Savior's bounty taste. Behold a never failing store for every willing guest. And so I'm just going to pray in conclusion, but... So Lord, I pray today again that you will once again revive us, that you will remind us of your great love for us, that you, God, came down and experienced true suffering, that you know our needs and our weaknesses. Invite us once again to your throne of grace that we might keep striving for this rest. 
May we continue to be a community and a body that does that together and encourages one another towards better and truer knowledge of you and your compassion for us. In the name of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, we pray. Amen. <laughs>